Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. While you're turning there, I'm going to give you some context. So Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and in this letter, he addresses different things ranging from encouragement to rebuke, church discipline, and he's also defending himself from false accusations from his rivals. Some wannabe apostles are coming in and sidetracking the Corinthians with boasts of spiritual visions, and they're using this to gain respect and to argue that they know what's really going on with the kingdom of God. So let's read our text, starting in verse, in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's being criticized by these wannabe church leaders, and they're trying to belittle Paul in any way that they can, and their accusations sound something like, this Paul guy suffers more than any Christian should. Something must be wrong with him. He sounds so authoritative, but really it's just arrogance. Does he have visions like we do, or just the boring old gospel? Paul's response is counterintuitive, and it's hard to read. So despite enjoying these authentic, amazing spiritual privileges from God in being taken to heaven, Paul boasts about his weaknesses. So the text presents us with this question. Are we content to suffer and be humbled by God to maximize the work of his power in our lives? Are we content to suffer and be humbled by God to maximize the work of his power in our lives? Are we sustained every day by the gracious power of the Lord Jesus or by our own power? So let's look at the text. In verses 2 through 4, Paul's taken to heaven, but he's humble. He receives incredible revelations. He doesn't disclose what they are. He says they can't be told, and literally it says, 
it's not lawful for me to tell. He's forbidden by God, apparently. I've never been transported to paradise, but what an amazing privilege. And it really happened. In verses 5 and 6, Paul gets a little confusing with his language, but let's just read it. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So by the logic of Paul's rivals, Paul would have bragging rights. That's what he's saying. If, I wouldn't be a fool if I, was gonna, if I were to boast about this, but, but that's not what he's trying to get at. So to shift the focus away from himself, he's talking about himself in the third person, which is strange to read. He says, I know a man, and on my own behalf I will not boast. He's trying to shift focus away from himself. So the only reason Paul is bringing up this vision is to dispel the criticisms of these false apostles, these false teachers, and say, look, I've actually been to heaven, (laughs) which is kind of the trump card. Um, Your visions are great, but I've actually been to paradise. But the details aren't for you to know. In fact, it was so glorious that God sent me a thorn. And that's counterintuitive uh, if you're trying to win out against your rivals to say, I'm super weak, I'm incredibly weak, God made me weak, to God be the glory. So let's move on to verse 7. Paul explains the cause of his humility. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So that's intense. Uh, Let's hit a pause button right here. We're going to look at the doctrine of suffering in the life of the Christian. Uh, We want to be able to think correctly about this text because it's very challenging at first glance. So we're going to take a little detour, but it's important. So first of all, on suffering, we know that all suffering is a product of the fall of man. But we also know that God has good purpose in it. Think about these questions with me as we look at the big picture of suffering. Does God ever use evil for good? Most of us are comfortable with that. If you're not, think about the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers conspire against him. And in the end, God says, the brothers intended it for evil, but I intended it for good. We also know that God has the right to do whatever he pleases, and he's not going to fail at accomplishing his ultimate purpose. Isaiah 46, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So there's nothing outside of his knowledge or power or plans And evil forces can't sneak around and do something outside of his control. So does God ever actually send the evil? S-E-N-D. Consider Job. It's not a book we like to think about, but God dispatched Satan to afflict Job and said, you can do whatever you want to him, you just can't kill him. And Job rightly responds by saying, we accept good from God, 
will we not also accept evil? My eyebrows go up when I read that, but it's true. So hang with me. Finally, consider that God orchestrated the suffering and death of the most innocent, sensitive man, Jesus, who was betrayed by a messenger of Satan, Judas. But God did not sin or delight in any of the evil. Psalm 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with you. So is God evil in any way, or is he cruel, or is he sadistic, or is he unfeeling? No. We have to keep the Lord Jesus in mind when we think about Christian suffering. Christ suffered. Christ suffered. He took the worst upon himself. He was tortured, covered in spit, bleeding all over. He was put to shame, stripped naked in front of his own mother. He is not sadistic. He is not cold. He is not indifferent. When he ordains suffering in the life of his children, it is always for our eternal good and for his glory. And we don't have what it takes to endure the suffering, but Jesus, our suffering Savior, does. And we'll get back to our text soon. So here's Paul on suffering in general. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, same letter. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul, one of the most enlightened people in human history, says, In all of creation, there's nothing I could even compare to the glorious reward we will receive for our suffering. It's so worth it. And when he says light and momentary, he's talking to people who are being tortured and martyred. How is that light and momentary compared to a glorious eternity beyond our wildest dreams? That's how. So let's bring it back specifically to Paul in his own life. At Paul's conversion, the Lord Jesus says, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. From the beginning. So, sounds like it's part of the plan. And it also sounds like it's for Paul's good and God's glory. So, let's get back to our text for today and read verse 7 again. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul is shouting God's good purpose in the pain at the beginning and at the end of this verse. It's to keep him from great sin. It's for his good. It's to keep him from pride. It's to keep him from the heart condition of the devil. And there's divine irony there. God is using evil forces to prevent his child from committing evil. As for what the thorn actually was, Paul doesn't say, 
and people speculate wildly. The word thorn is better translated as something like a tent stake or a scalpel. Messenger of Satan is literally angel of Satan. And Paul could have said something else. Why in the world say angel of Satan? Isn't that terrifying? Paul wants everyone to know that even worst case scenario, if the actual devil or one of his angels is sent to cause you grief, it's in the hand of God. And the word harass here is the same exact word used to describe the sufferings of Jesus. It means to abuse or torment repeatedly and violently in a humiliating way. That sounds awful. So whatever the thorn was, it was somehow more troublesome than Paul's other sufferings. Shipwrecks, floggings, beatings, stonings, hunger, exposure, just to name a few. The thorn was persistent and relentless and painful, and it made him weak. The whole point was that it made him weak. Nobody likes to be weak. Losing our self-sufficiency, whether it's in our health, it could be in our intellect, it could be job, whatever area, no one likes having to be needy or dependent. It's fundamentally humbling. And it's the least American thing ever. Weakness here is seen as detestable and something we have to hide. Paul's rivals thought so too. But people who have no earthly needs are often blind to their spiritual neediness. They forget God and exalt themselves. And the word conceit here means exalting myself. So let's look at verse 8. What is Paul's response to this crazy situation? This angel of Satan who brought him a thorn from the hand of God. It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's not stoic. He doesn't put on a brave face. And this is the guy who wrote the book on the armor of God. It was too much for him to handle. And he begged his father for relief for three extended periods of time. This is emotional appropriately. And his response is not simple. It's what Jesus did before his crucifixion. And we see that suffering is never fun. We can't make it fun. A chipper attitude isn't the remedy here. But suffering does produce joy in the long run. Remember Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. But in the moment, it's not a happy time. And Paul demonstrates that. If you're a self-help kind of person, thorn kind of suffering can't be skipped or short-circuited. Thinking or acting differently will not provide an escape from something like this. So what do we do? What do we do? We plead with God and we submit to God in it. Our Lord Christ himself, when he was considering the suffering of the cross in Gethsemane, wept until he bled as he expressed the trouble in his heart. And he knew it was coming. The knowledge didn't deaden the pain, and he was very emotional. Matthew 26, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus pleaded three times. Paul pleaded three times. And there's so much comfort in this. Almighty God pleaded with God the Father. He knew the plan. He knew about God's power. He is God. And he knows how it's going to go. But in the moment, he experiences the authentic pain. He cries out to his Father. And ultimately, he submits to God's will. So we have to submit to the good, loving will of God, even in the face of horrible circumstances. Be emotional. It's okay. Cry out to God. Plead with Him to deliver you. And He might. We don't, we don't know what's a thorn and what isn't in the moment. But if God doesn't take it away, submit to God in it. I want to clarify here that not all Christian suffering is a thorn. Some suffering is a result of sin. Some is chastisement. Some is simply for God's glory, like the man who was born blind that Jesus healed and said, this isn't a result of sin, this is for my glory. But all suffering, regardless of how you categorize it, all suffering in the life of a Christian drives us to depend on Christ, to see ourselves appropriately as weak and needy, to repent if we're in sin, and ultimately to glorify God by relying on Him. What I'm about to say is personal, but it's not unique to me at all, and I believe it's important. Sometimes the burden of suffering is so great, it can make us want relief by any means possible, even death. But for the Christian, the only way out is forward. But even that is not by our own strength. Jesus understands being miserable. Run to him. If he doesn't grant you relief, he will graciously give you power to endure your suffering. So let's look at verse 9. Jesus directly responds to Paul. It's so encouraging It sounds condescending if you don't understand Jesus' life. But bearing in mind what we just talked about, Jesus, our suffering Savior. Verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Jesus says, My grace, the personal grace of our Lord. My grace. Our Lord who suffered the most, who understands. The language here means that His grace is fully, totally, always enough. Constantly supplied. His grace is never outmatched. It applies with absolute perfection to every situation. And Jesus chose to be weak on earth. In the same letter, 2 Corinthians in chapter 13, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So Jesus has been here before. He's not asking anything of Paul that he doesn't understand. And consider that even Jesus received help 
Even Jesus received help in enduring his suffering. When I hear Jesus say, pick up your cross and follow me, I feel intimidated. But I forget that Jesus received help to carry his own cross. Almighty God received help in the midst of his horrible circumstances. So if God has ordained a cross for you, will you accept help from others while you suffer for God's glory? Are you better than Jesus? Sometimes relying on the grace and power of God means relying on his people. And then when Jesus says, my power is made perfect in weakness, isn't it perfect already? Um, It just means fully manifested, completed, maximized, displayed. Weakness enables this to happen because we can't share the credit with God. If we get all the credit, God gets none. Our weakness means that God gets the credit appropriately. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, talking about the big picture for weakness, says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, like Paul, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's God's big picture purpose for weakness. So what does Paul boast of? Let's look at verse 9. He boasts of his weakness, of his insufficiency, his inability, his neediness, and he's happy happy about it. Can a normal human heart do this? Only a redeemed heart can do this. And what about Paul's embarrassment? What about the stigma of being afflicted with all these problems? Paul is far more concerned with Christ's power and glory in his life than with saving face before men. Are you too proud to let others in, to share how God's grace and power is the only thing that gets you through life? Or is that totally foreign because you've got everything you need? And I'm preaching to myself. God has destroyed my self-sufficiency. And I'm, I'm glad. And what does Paul mean by the power of Christ may rest upon me? The word means to dwell like pitching a tent. It's living there for all to see. Verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is content. He went through mourning. He pleaded with God. He then submitted to God, and now he's contented. The weaker Paul is in himself, the stronger he is with Christ's power. So when he's especially weak, he gets excited because he knows God's power is coming. And Paul expands the list of sufferings here, thankfully. It might be hard to relate to a messenger of Satan or a thorn, um, but what about persecution or hardship? 
What about calamity? Um, the language describes something beyond our control that is crushing us. It's like a claustrophobic type language. We're being pressed in and we have no escape. Can anyone relate to that? So Paul is content with these intense sufferings. Are we even content in general, much less with suffering? Are we content in Christ if our health isn't quite right? If the weather's not great? If our job is way harder than we would like? If our relationships are deep in stress? Our bank account's lower than we would prefer? Are we content that we have everything we need? The grace-filled heart, like Paul has, says something like this. All I have is Christ. He is sufficient all the time. I am content. I'm terribly weak. And He is all that sustains me. And the darker my circumstances, the deeper His grace. To God be all the glory. I am more than a conqueror through him who loves me. Paul can say that in the middle of incredible suffering. He knows the end purpose, and he trusts God. So in closing, suffering is hard. Suffering is horrible. It's not a good thing in and of itself. And I am not saying we should run out and ask God to make our lives more difficult or that we would have more problems that we can't get rid of, or that we would make more mistakes, or anything like that. But when we encounter suffering, God is absolutely going to use it for our good and for his glory. And whether or not you think you have a thorn, you might have hardships, you might have calamities, you might have persecutions, you might be weak. Let other Christians in. Let other Christians in. Encourage one another. The power of Jesus is often administered through his body. Don't be too proud to show weakness. Instead, glorify Christ as he administers his grace and power to you and share your testimony of weakness and how Christ sustained you. The glory of Christ is worth much more than a little embarrassment. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, repent of your sins and believe on Christ. He died and rose again to save sinners. Becoming a Christian might not make your problems go away. You might actually have a more difficult life on earth. But Jesus will graciously supply his power for you to endure. Pray with me and then we're going to stand and worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please encourage those who are struggling. Convict us all of sin that we can confess. We want to love you more. We want our lives to reflect your power and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.